Hi, my name is Victoria from the Philippines, and this episode is brought to you by Lalalai. Did you know that using Lalalai's AI neural network, you can extract vocal, instrumental, drums, bass, piano, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, and synthesizer from songs, as well as remove voice and noise from audio and video recordings? This is great for making music, music lessons and practice, cleaning up old recordings, translating and transcribing movies, and many more. To get this product, visit lalal.ai. This is MPW, the podcast with your host, Zylo Aria. Cool. A podcast about music production for the everyday musician, where we learn from experienced studio engineers and each other. Joe Heaton is a product specialist for one of the world's top audio manufacturers, AMS Neve. He started his career in recording studios, then moved into live sound, culminating in his current role as the product specialist. At Neve, Joe's role covers sales and marketing through to product development and testing and working closely with Neve's R&D team. It's lovely to have you with us today, Joe. So you mentioned it's kind of mid-morning for you, so getting a few things done in your day. It is, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me on. This is fantastic. Always happy to talk about the things that we do here. You were mentioning you're in the Gold Coast of Australia, so you've got all the great weather and uh, we're in a rainy English uh, spring at the moment, so... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yes, no, I feel very lucky to be where I am at the moment. So, yeah, I'm not going to complain about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave the complaining to the Brits. Don't worry, we do plenty sure. of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. But before we jump into mixing desks and all the good stuff about that and how they work, I would love to know a little bit more about you and how you got to where you are in your career today. And it seems like you've kind of done a few different things and ended up now at Neve. So I'd love to hear about that journey. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I've always been involved in audio and uh, and music in general. You know, that's been my whole life. I think the first time I picked up a guitar was maybe three years old. There's a really cute camcorder video that my parents have of me struggling to hold up a guitar and trying to play uh, Smoke on the Water, I think. Something like that anyway. So yeah, music's kind of been part of my life for a very long time. So, you know, from the early days of learning guitar, I also learned piano. I was in many bands when I was younger as well. I think the first band I was in when I was 12 years old. My parents had a converted attic in the house and they let us practice with the band all the time and we annoyed the neighbours, let's say, <laughs> quite a lot, but my parents were really cool with it. So that kind of forged a love for just music in general, you know. And then obviously, you know, moving through early career, I decided to, you know, I, I did music at college, but I wanted to get more into the technical side as well because, you know, I've always been fascinated with sound and how sounds are created even early on, I saw it as a more viable career path for me because of the way that my mind works. You know, I'm, I'm much more interested in the, in the sounds of, and, and the science of sound and things like that, as much so as I am with the music itself. So, you know, I've always been carrying on in bands as well. But uh, early on, I went to college and learned music technology. And from then, 
I actually left college at, I think it was around 18, and started my own business, which was a small studio and rehearsal rooms. And my dad was really, really helpful with that, setting it up. He's a tradesman, so he helped me with all the building and all of that. And, you know, we rented out this old warehouse space, and he helped with all the interior stud walling and all of that stuff, the stuff that I was <laughs> I had no idea how to do. So that was great. You know, I did that for a few years. It was only a very, very small thing. You know, it wasn't like a big studio making tons and tons of money or any of that. It was ticking by and it was doing well. But, you know, throughout that, I was still doing bands, you know, multiple different bands. And I wanted to do more in the audio realm. So I went into live sound. I went to another technical college to learn more about live sound and a bit more on the sciencey side of it as well. So I then went through to working in live sound for many years. I was doing that for around eight to 10 years freelance. I did some systems tech work and I was front of house engineer, monitor engineer, basically every kind of role you can have in the live industry. But during that, I was still always doing studio stuff as well. You know, I had my own studio. I was working freelance for a few smaller studios up in the northwest of England. So, you know, I've always been doing sound from one side or another. And I never really had a job that was outside of the industry, which I consider myself very, very lucky to have that because I know it's such a struggle for many people, musicians, audio professionals. It's a hard industry to be in and to actually make a living off. So I'm very thankful that I've managed to maintain that. And then I ended up doing some work at UCLan, which is University of Central Lancashire. I went back to university as a mature student uh, just before I turned 30. Again, I just wanted to learn even more, you know, go even further into sound and learn even more about music production. So I went there and did a degree. And at that college, we had a Genesis Black console, the same console I have behind me. I'm currently in the studio at Neve. I became an expert on that console. I just spent days in that studio in the university learning everything about it. And then that led into uh, me meeting up with Mark Crabtree, who's the, the managing director and owner of AMS Neve. And they were looking for experts on the console and students who had a lot of experience on it to then maybe do some freelance work here and there. That then turned into a full-time job at AMS Neve. So I basically I walked out of the university after getting my degree and within a week, I was working here for AMS Neve, which was fantastic. You know, it's like a dream job for someone like me. So, yeah, and that's where we are. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yes, that must have been such a dream come true situation. And also one interesting thing there about you, you know, finishing up your first stint at college and then leaving and deciding that you're going to start a business with a studio and your dad being all for that. I love hearing that because I would say not many parents would maybe be too thrilled about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think I've got to give credit to my parents. They've always been massively supportive of me again, from passing me that guitar that was way too big for me when I was three years old. They've always been massively supportive of everything that I do that's involved in music. So yeah, I'm very proud of that. Mm, Love that. So is there an event in your life that you feel like you've learned the most from? Yeah, there's definitely one that really stands out here. And I don't want to turn things down, uh, you know, make this into a, a sad, tragic story or whatever. But the, the one that really affected me the most was actually the death of a relative. I had a young niece who struggled with some medical problems throughout her life. 
And she unfortunately passed away in my mid-twenties and it devastated the family, it devastated me as well. And when that happened, it changed my outlook on everything. Again, you know, as I mentioned before, I'd always been involved in audio. I was doing audio live, freelance, and then working for different companies here and there. But after that happened, it triggered something in me that made me think, right, there's not no time to waste here. You know, when it comes to family or anything in life, you know, if you have any sort of opportunity, just go for it. Just say yes. And that kind of triggered a shift in my life where it's like, right, I'm really going to pursue audio as much as I can now. I'm going to put everything into this. And that's what led me to going back to university, actually. That happened several years before, but I thought, right, I'm going to give this everything and go back and get a full degree and see where that takes me. And then that's what led me to where I am today. Yeah, wow. It's interesting. We talk about this with a few of our guests and it's, you know, I don't want to use the word funny, but like it's a little bit sad how sometimes we need to have these kind of intense and often sad points in our life to then realise that, right, actually maybe I do only get this one chance to do the thing that I want to do and, you know, not to waste that. And it sounds like you definitely had that situation which has altered the course of your life and and I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but the reason I started MPW was because a close friend of mine passed away all of a sudden and it's these kind of things that just make you realise that if there's something you want to do, now is the time to do it, really. So can you tell me, Joe, a random fact about yourself that maybe not that many people in music know about you? <laughs> um, that's a tricky one. Uh, there's probably a few, but I'm really into rock climbing. That's one of the oh, things I nice. got into. I got into that around two years ago now. And other than music and audio, that's what I like to do in my spare time. So I even worked out a gym routine to improve my skills climbing. So I, basically when I finish work, I go home after I have dinner with the family and everything. And then I go to the gym and I'm doing all these strength workouts and stuff. I'm not very good at all, but I'm trying, you know. <laughs> oh, no, that's so cool. I don't know anything really about rock climbing but I've been bouldering a few times and I'm pretty bad I would say but um, <laughs> just seeing some people I think until you try it yourself you don't realize how difficult it is and sometimes you're like how do these people have so much strength in their fingers <laughs> it's yeah. just incredible Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's a type of strength that isn't usual. You have to build it up. You have to spend minutes hanging on just to your fingertips on the really thin boards and things like that just to build up strength oh, to do it. Oh, so. is that how you yeah. do it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I see. So coming to our topic today, Joe, on mixing desks, I was going to ask you to define what a mixing desk is in one sentence, as we sometimes do, <laughs> but I thought maybe that might be a harsh question, but I don't know. Do you want to have a go at that? In one sentence, okay. A mixing desk is an interface between human operation and the science and technology behind what creates sound in a studio. Jeez, so that that's it in one good. sentence. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good. Thanks. <laughs> so what would you say is the main purpose of a mixing desk? Um, so basically, going back to it being a, an interface between human and the technology behind the sound, it, 
basically it's a workflow uh, piece of equipment. Now, previously, a mixing desk was the only way to really make music in a studio. You'd have a mixing desk in front of you, and it did many, many different tasks, converting the electrical energy from the microphone through to the line energy that goes into the recordings, the tape machine or whatever. Nowadays, they're not really necessary in, at every stage. As you know, you know, you've got people working from home with small audio interfaces and so on. But what a mixing desk gives you is the ability to have all access to all of the components of a track right at your fingertips. So you have everything in front of you at once, which you do not get with working with software alone, DAWs and things like that. It's quite hard to achieve that without very large controllers. With a mixing desk, you have everything at your fingertips, essentially. Okay. And just in case, I guess, anyone in our listenership isn't exactly sure what we're talking about, we're talking about if you go to imagine one of those huge studios and those huge desks with all these faders and different colored buttons that you would expect to see in front of you as well. So it's good to think about that purpose, as you mentioned. And can you talk me through what is the basic signal flow that you expect to see in a mixing desk? Yeah, so basically you have multiple channels. We call them channels. And these are individual inputs. At the back of the mixing desk, you would have XLR-type inputs that you would plug a microphone into. And so in its most basic form, you plug one microphone into one channel. And then the audio runs through that channel. You have a preamp at the top. And the preamp can be of many different designs. But basically, that preamp is used to add gain and volume to the low-level microphone signal. So that boosts the signal up to a higher level, which is called line level. This line level signal then goes through the rest of the channel strip, which could include EQ, could include dynamics. So you can shape the sound with these tools on the mixing desk. From there, this signal is then sent out via a busing system. So you can have things called aux sends, which send the signal to multiple different places. You know, that could be to a reverb unit or to a performer's headphones, for example, when you're doing some recording. And then you have the main bus, which combines all of these individual channel signals into typically a stereo output. So this stereo output is your main left and right output that you would play back through speakers. That is then recorded previously before DAWs were in invented. That was recorded to, to a tape machine, to a two-track tape. Or nowadays, typically, that's recorded into, onto a stereo track in your DAW. And then that becomes your main stereo output for CD, Spotify stream, or any form of medium. Okay, okay. So the start of what you mentioned there sort of sounds a little bit like the job of an audio interface where you're plugging in like a microphone or an instrument and then that's going through your preamp. And then where you mentioned it has a lot more functionality than your DAW I guess in a DAW, you'd have to add then a EQ plug-in or a compressor or something like that, whereas that can sometimes be in the channel strip as well. Exactly. And if you look at a DAW, a DAW is actually modelled on a mixing desk because mixing desks were the first thing. These were the first pieces of equipment that did this job. When DAWs came out, you know, if you look at Pro Tools and you look at the mix window in Pro Tools, from top to bottom, 
it is set up just like a mixing desk is. You have the input, you have the inserts, which are places where you can add EQ, you can add these processing blocks. Then it goes down, you have sends, which are your auxes on a console, and then you have the fader, which is your main level. And then the busing system in Pro Tools is like your main left and right that you would send. It's exactly the same as a mixing desk, but achieved digitally. Mm, okay. So how would you say a mixing desk impacts the process of gain staging when you are recording audio and mixing? So it does give you multiple gain stages. So we mentioned there you have the preamp at the top and desks such as the Neve Genesis, which is the one I have behind me in the Neve studio here. We actually have two gain stages at the top. You have the main input stage, which has transformer balanced input. That's 1073, so it gives you that really nice, warm sound that you'll have heard on records over the past 40 years, essentially. And then you have a little trim control underneath, which allows you to attenuate or boost that even further. So you've got a double stage input there. And then as you go down the channel strip, you have the faders, which give you a, a nice main output level. So you can then track that individual channel straight into your DAW or then you can bust that into the main left and right. So you've basically got multiple stages of adding gain. And in order to get a really nice mix, you know, many, many engineers will tell you gain staging is the most important thing. You know, it's crucial to understand that to be able to build a good mix. Mm. And actually, for anyone who is unfamiliar with what gain staging is, would you be able to define that as well? Gain staging, basically, it's... You're starting off with, like, say, a microphone, which is very low level. You know, sensitivity on a microphone has to convert the acoustic energy of your voice hitting the mechanical diaphragm into an electrical signal. And that is a very low voltage signal. So what happens is when that goes through a preamp, that then has to be amplified to give you a good amount of gain. But obviously, if you're adding too much gain there, then the signal's going to clip into a DAW, Pro Tools or whatever. And digital clipping is not something that you want, you know. Whereas with analog clipping, as I mentioned, you have these multiple gain stages. You have the ability to add more gain at the input, then dial it back at the trim stage, and then dial it back even further at the fader. The difference between, as I mentioned, digital clipping is not something that sounds nice to the human ear at all. Whereas analog clipping is, you know, it certainly can be. Analog clipping, you can effectively choose at which stage you would like to add or subtract gain on a console. And this can give you some of, you know, the, the nice harmonics that analog gear provides. You can add more gain at the input, for example, where the transformer is coupling that input stage. Add a bit more gain there on the first stage and then reduce it to give you a good signal into Pro Tools, but it's actually quite a hot signal in the analog domain. So this is something you only really get with analog gear. There are emulations in DAWs and software, but they, they do an okay job, I think. But, it, you know, when you actually compare this to what you get with analog gear, it just the sound is just incredible. And it's one of the reasons why in the top studios in the world, you will still see a mixing desk. You will still see big analog consoles to achieve what they're trying to achieve. And not just the biggest studios, mid-range studios, they're all using analog gear to some degree. And if it's not a mixing console, it's something that approximates a mixing console, like a channel strip. You know, you can have individual channel strips that, you, you know, you record one vocal through, and it's basically the exact same 
layout as what you would have on a console. It gives you the preamp, maybe some EQ, maybe some compression, and then an output stage. And many small studios use these on the input. You know, they're getting the console sound and feel without having a full analog console behind them, essentially. Mm. Okay. And what you mentioned there about analog clipping and then bringing down the gain later on in the process, would that sound something like, I'm trying to imagine like saturation or something like Mm -hmm. adding saturation in a DAW? Yes, yes, exactly. That is the definition of saturation, basically. So that can come in many shapes and sizes. You can really, let's say, destroy a signal and make it sound hugely distorted and fuzzy, which again, that could be exactly what you need for that particular track. Or it can be quite subtle in the form of added harmonics, which is one of the things that the Neve preamps provide, adding extra harmonic content to whatever signal you're processing. And that does not typically sound like saturation and distortion. When you think of saturation and distortion, you're thinking kind of fuzzy, overdriven sound. But the subtle harmonic saturation that you get with certain preamps, the best way to describe it is, let's say you're using a vocal, it just gives the vocal more weight and more life. It's the things that you've heard on records over the past, you know, several decades. That sound is harmonically rich. And it's only achieved through certain pieces of analog gear. And what would you say is the difference between a digital mixing desk and an analog mixing desk? So a digital mixing desk essentially is doing what a DAW is doing. An analog mixing desk has everything that we previously mentioned, whereas a digital mixing desk is basically an emulation of that, essentially. They do the same job but you're basically converting that analog signal at the very first stage. So you'd still need an analog preamp. The analog gear still exists at the very start of the recording process. So you have the microphone, you need a preamp to convert that signal. And then at that stage, it's converted into digital to zeros and ones, at which point all of the processing on a digital desk is happening in software, essentially. So... The benefits of digital is basically you can do almost anything. The creative capability is vast. And, of course, recallability, all of this, you don't need to reset uh, manually (laughs) the digital desk, typically. And this is what live desks do. You know, all the live desks nowadays are all digital, essentially. And the benefits of that massively outweigh any of the negatives because for live, things need to be fast, they need to be flexible, And they don't necessarily need to have that extra added analog hue. There are some engineers, you know, Dave Ratz, who works with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, he still takes analog mixing desks out there because he loves the sound. But, you know, they're few and far between. In live, you're typically going digital. But in the studio realm, you're typically going analog because you have the affordability of time. You know, in a studio, you're working for the very best sound at all times. Obviously, there are deadlines and you do sometimes have to do things very fast. But typically, sound is the priority in a studio. So that's where you will see more analog mixing desks versus digital. And then in live sound, it's the other way around. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. And when using analog outboard gear, what additional options would you say do you have with a mixing desk for parallel processing? Uh, Yeah, so with a mixing desk, you typically have more ways of routing things. So for things like parallel processing, without a mixing desk, you would have to have a lot of patching 
cables kind of all over the place going in and out of an interface you need to split the signal in the interface sorry in the daw through the interface which means you're using more of your precious adda converters on your audio interface whereas if you do this in the analog domain on a mixing desk you have each signal coming into each channel has multiple places it can go so it doesn't just have to go to the main mix bus it could go to aux one two three four and so on you have direct outs insert points sometimes multiple insert points and you can utilize those in different ways you could have one for a dry signal and then one for a wet signal so there's your parallel processing happening on a single channel strip so with certain mixing desks it just makes things a lot easier and a lot more streamlined for doing things like that okay yeah so a few more options available to you and why would you say you might want to use a mixing desk i know you've mentioned a few things already there and the benefits that you get from using a mixing desk but is there any other specific reason you might go for that over mixing in the box or in your daw yeah so i think an important consideration nowadays for people who are looking to let's say you're working in the box and you're considering buying a console or upgrading to starting to work on a mixing console It's a workflow thing mostly because, as we've mentioned, you have everything at your fingertips. It can really make a workflow much faster and much more streamlined. You've got one piece of equipment that handles all of the studio requirements. You've got the input stage, your preamps, you've got the EQing, the dynamics processing, all the faders. So it can do tracking, overdubbing and mixing all different times very easily without having to reconfigure your uh, Pro Tools session for example, and your patching configuration to and from your audio interface. With a console, you have that all available. So really, it speeds up a studio workflow. The second point is the sound. And this is one of the things that, I mean, I'm sure you've seen many summing mixers are out there on the market. What a summing mixer is doing is trying to emulate what mixing consoles gave to sound over many, many years. A summing mixer is essentially an analog circuit that has multiple inputs all going typically to outputs. So that's your mix bus that you have on a console. And there are many small studios who can't afford consoles or don't have the size, the space for a console who still want some of that sound. So they'll install a summing mixer and then run their final mixes, their signals from their Pro Tools session, maybe 16 tracks through the summing mixer, giving them their final output. So I think the existence of summing mixers and their wide use basically highlights something that you don't get with working in the box, which is the you know that, that analog sound, that summing sound that you get from a console. And of course, if you wanted to take it further from a summing mixer going through to a console, you get that sound quality and you get all of the workflow considerations that I mentioned previously as well. So it's twofold, sound and workflow. Mm, okay. And if you have not used a mixing console or desk before, what are some things to be aware of or what can be some potential disadvantages of using a desk over mixing in your DAW? Hmm, that's a tricky one. Uh, obviously, I'm going to I'm going to speak about the positives <laughs> much much more than negatives. I mean, of my, most of most of my job is talking about how good our consoles are. So, I guess the cost is probably one of the main things. They're just, you know, a piece of equipment like the console I have behind me, the Neve Genesis Black, or many of the serious studio consoles. 
they can be quite expensive because you know there's a lot of work that goes into these there's a lot of technology built in so for some people it might be a bit beyond their budget but that's having said that there are many smaller consoles that have come out on the market that can be used by even really small studios so i guess one of the things i'd say would be possibly the time it takes to learn them and that's not really for me that's not even a negative because i love that <laughs> you know i'd love to get a piece of equipment i'd love to really get inside it and figure out how it works but for some people they're working in the box they totally understand that workflow and a mixing desk is a bit alien to them and almost seems like maybe a waste of time having to learn the quirks of how the signal flow work but yeah i mean those slight negatives but again for me not not, <laughs> not so much so <laughs> yeah yeah one thing i've wondered if you are mixing on a mixing desk is there a way that you know you've had a listen you want to make a change a few weeks later how would you then recall those settings onto the desk yeah so this is one of the modern problems for uh, mixing console manufacturers so basically, when DAWs came out and they basically gave you a, a, an emulation of a mixing desk, like I mentioned before, Pro Tools gives you that layout that is very similar to a console. All you have to do with Pro Tools is save that, close it down, come back to it months later and open it up and everything's as it was. So this was typically a problem with mixing consoles. You know, if you had just an analog mixing console that has no digital control or digital features, then what you would have to do would e either be to use a recall sheet, which is basically a, like a visual representation of each channel strip with the knobs and the faders and draw the positions on. Or um, what came after that was taking photos. Once everyone had an iPhone in the pocket, it was, right, I'll take a photo, go down the channel strip, photo, 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 and take many, many pictures of the console and then... When you come back to it, you look at the photo, move the knob, look at the photo. And, you know, that's a massively painstaking process. So there are still consoles that are like that. There, there are consoles out there that are purely analog. And that's one of the restrictions of them. You know, if you, if you want to recall them, you have to do that. And that's it. You know, some people just want that analog through and through console. They don't want any bells and whistles. They just want it as it was back in the day, essentially. But a lot of the modern consoles have multiple ways of combating that problem. And the way that we do it here at Neve, we have uh, several consoles. Most of our modern consoles are fully recallable. And we do it several ways. So with the 8424 console, this is our modern producer's console, we have like a built-in recall program. And there's a small screen in the center of the console. And basically you can save and load settings from an app on your computer. When you finish with your mix, press save, saves all of the console settings into this app. And then when you come back, you can load them back up. And then when you load them back up, you still have to move the analog pots, but the faders are motorized, so they all go back to where they were. But you still have to move some of the analog pots, but there is an interactive program on the console that shows you exactly where to move it very quickly. So you can do things very fast that way. And essentially to recall that console takes around five minutes versus maybe 20 minutes of going through recall sheets and photos and all of that. So that's one way of doing it. And then with the Genesis Black console and the Genesis console range, we went even further. So the analog processing on the board, like the EQ, the dynamics, these are the things that change 
every single mix. You know, you're going to have a different EQ for a different kick drum or a different vocal or whatever. So these are the things that are very tiresome to recall. If these are all analog pots, it takes you a long time to manually move those. So what we did with the Genesis is we have complete digital control over all of those analog features. So it's a real analog circuit path. So the signal path is exactly the same as the big consoles that do have all the individual knobs, but we just have digital control over them. You can actually control it from a plugin as well. From within Pro Tools, you can remotely control the analog circuitry from a plugin. So this means with something like the Genesis, we've basically tied the old way of working on an analog console completely in with the new way of working with the DAW. So all you have to do is open your DAW session. As soon as it's opened, the plugin communicates with the console, reloads all of your EQs, all of that, and the whole console is basically recalled in a matter of minutes, essentially. It's best of both worlds. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> that is super cool. And last question on the desks. What is the term zeroing the desk or what does that mean? Well, zeroing the desk is very similar to what we just mentioned. So recalling the desk is going from its current state over to a previous state. So recalling a mix, whereas zeroing is going from its current state to a default state. So essentially it's moving all of the, those EQ positions back to zero. So you're not adding any EQ you know, you could talk about just zeroing the faders, which moves all of the fader positions to the zero point so that you're not adding any gain, any more volume there. But zeroing a whole desk is basically making sure that everything is flat. You know, you're not adding any gain at any stage. You're not adding any EQ or any dynamics or any of that. Everything is just flat. So it's basically like a good default state to begin working on the mixing desk. Okay. And is that a process that is automated on the digital desks but needs to be done manually on the analog desks exactly yeah yeah so with a digital desk you could typically just open up a default snapshot and then everything's zeroed with an analog desk you would have to manually do it or with a hybrid desk like the genesis black behind me or the 8424 you could do that from the software telling the analog circuitry to go back to zero essentially So now we are on to our speed quiz. Joe, are you ready? Yes. Yeah, this sounds interesting. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to expect from this part. So, All right. So it is five would you rather questions okay. and quick fire on which one you would prefer. So would you rather produce a song with terrible vocals but brilliant lyrics or a song with amazing vocals but terrible lyrics? Ooh. God, that is a tricky one. <laughs> I think the one with the amazing vocals, because okay. I, I always focus on the sound of things. No, no, not, I, yeah. I do like good lyrics, but I focus more on the sound more. So, yeah. I, okay. All right. <laughs> cool. Oh, we caught you on that one already. That's... <laughs> All right. So would you rather not listen to music for a year or give up the internet for two years? Oh, that's a tricky one. I need. I really need the internet. <laughs> I really need music. Um, I'd probably give up the internet. I think music's too important. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. No. I'd probably do the same. Would you rather have the best studio in a bad location or the worst studio in an excellent location? 
I guess location is really important. You know, uh, it's one of the questions that no one really talks about too much. Is you know, you can have an amazing studio, but in the middle of nowhere, and it, it can be quite difficult to bring people to it. You know, you, you, it's uh, it, it, that that becomes more of a task than actually doing the recording. It's just getting people to your studio. Whereas if you're based in London, New York, LA, you know, you're you're, you're in a good position already. So I guess I'd go for location and then I just hope to build the studio up. <laughs> I'd, get a, okay. I'd get a few clients through the door and then as the money started to come in, then the studio would get better. So yeah, maybe, maybe that one. That's good. <laughs> no, it's good. I think we're missing the speediness part of this quiz, Joey, but, uh, but doing, <laughs> doing okay. Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> would you rather be out of tune or half a bit behind? Out of tune. Oh, I don't <laughs> think anyone's chosen that one before. <laughs> I can use, I can use you my rather... iodine. <laughs> oh, true, true. Yeah, that's good. Would you rather be a talented songwriter who can't sing or a great singer who can't write songs? The first one, yeah. I think, okay. uh, yeah. Songwriter who Songwriter, can't sing. yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, all right. Well, we marginally got a little bit faster towards the end there. <laughs> yeah, so, but, sorry uh, about that. It's not, it's not bad. <laughs> Got a bit of background as we went. Yeah. That was good. <laughs> so coming to our top tips then, Joe, what is your one top career tip? I think this one goes back to what I was saying earlier about that the life event that really shaped my way of thinking. I'd say any opportunity you get, say yes. Even if it's something that scares you, something that you don't think you can do something that you're really uncomfortable with, maybe, I think just say yes to it and then worry about it later. That way of thinking has really helped me. And, you know, I think especially in audio, there are so many different ways you can go in this career. You never know what's going to come through the door. You could end up working, you know, doing uh, voiceover for children's animations or you could be the front of house engineer for a huge band. You know, it, it could be anywhere. So I think the only thing you can do is just say yes and then worry about the consequences later. Oh, totally, totally agree. That's a great one to think about. And what's your one top self-care tip? I think look after yourself, look after your body, your mind. For me, as I mentioned, I do rock climbing and that just really clears my head, you know, going to the gym, doing something physical because, you know, we're stuck in studios all the day. I think it's really important if you're doing this type of career to have something that's the opposite of that. So going outdoors, doing something active, that'll really clear your mind up ready for the next day. Yeah, for sure. That's a really, really important one there. And what is your one top general life tip? I think just be good to people, you know, be a nice person. You know, that's the best thing you can do. I have two young children and, you know, I, I want them to have amazing careers and all this stuff. But primarily, I want them to be happy. And I think you're only going to be happy if you're nice to other people. You know, you reap what you sell. So be kind to people. Oh, love that. What a great way to end the episode as well, George. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It's been really, really lovely and a great introduction to mixing desks and consoles for anyone that hasn't been around them. So thank you so much. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. It's been fantastic. My biggest three takeaways from Joe's episode was firstly that using a mixing desk can often improve your workflow because a lot of the tools that you need for your mix are at your fingertips rather than having to add them. My second biggest takeaway was that digital mixing desks often have the capability of recalling mix settings, which can sometimes be quite a time-consuming process 
within an analog desk, which is something to think about. My last biggest takeaway was to do the things that scare you and take you out of your comfort zone, because this is often where the opportunities are in the music industry. That's it from us this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I look forward to seeing you in two weeks.